to me. And it's got this provocative title. The title of the book is Why Nobody Wants to Be Around Christians Anymore. That sound like a good book? Now, I, I want to tell you, this is not one of those blasphemous books that's attacking Christians and Christianity. This book, Why Nobody Wants to Be Around Christians Anymore, is actually written by a Christian author, uh, two Christian authors, a married couple, uh, Tom and Joni Schultz. And they wrote this book not to bash Christians or Christianity. They wrote this book actually to help followers of Jesus learn how to avoid pushing people away. They wrote the book to teach followers of Jesus how to be a magnet for God's love instead. Now, early in the book, the authors list four reasons people don't want to be around Christians. Now, I should say this book is kind of written for the American setting. You know, some of us will be going to Southeast Asia and to China, uh, do missionary work. The church is different and perceived differently in different cultures. This book is written primarily about the American church. And here's what they said. They said there's four main reasons why people don't want to be around Christians. You know what they are? First one, you judge me. You judge me. And uh, uh, there's another book called Unchristian written by uh, uh, Gabe, David Kinnaman and Dave, Gabe Lyons. And they revealed this startling research, uh, again, in America. They said that 87% of Americans view Christians as judgmental. Uh, 87%. I, mean, I'm, I read that and I thought, that means some Christians view Christians as judgmental too. In fact, maybe some of us are here. But uh, 87% of the general population in America views Christians as judgmental. That is not a good thing, right? So anyway, one reason why people don't want to be around Christians is they say, you judge me. Second reason, you don't care about me. You don't care about me. Some people feel like the Christians they know, they don't care what they think. They don't care what they feel. Uh, they just want to lecture at them, right? You know, they say, you don't care what I think, you don't care what I feel, uh, you don't listen to me, you're not trying to understand me, you just want to lecture me, or you just want to tell me what you believe, but you don't want to know what I believe. So, second reason, uh, you don't care about me. The third reason, this one won't surprise you, the third reason people don't want to be around Christians is they say, you're a bunch of hypocrites, right? We've all heard that one. You're a bunch of hypocrites. A whopping 85% of Americans consider Christians to be hypocritical. That's crazy, right? That's insane, right? We preach a gospel of love and grace, but we don't reflect those values when we interact with people who are different from us. People perceive Christians as acting as though they have it all together, they have all the answers, they're always right, as if they're arrogant, and um, so we're perceived as hypocritical. Now, I'm not saying this is valid or not, and I'm not saying it's everybody, but does it disturb you a little bit that this is how Christians are viewed? That many people in our society don't want to be around Christians because they say, uh, you judge me, you don't care about me, you're a bunch of hypocrites. The fourth reason is, you act like God doesn't matter. And that's the one that really surprised me. You act like God doesn't matter. People look at Christians, and the, what they see in many of the Christians' lives is, it seems from their perspective that God is irrelevant to the lives of Christians. That disturb you? That, that concerns me a great deal. Uh, believe it or not, people want God. What they really want is they want to be assured that God is real. They want to see signs that a loving God is, is active and, and living and, and working around them and making a real difference in people's lives today. So if they don't see that real difference in the lives of those who say they're Christians, if the Christians don't, don't want to talk about their faith because it's not important enough to talk about, if the Christians are not passionate about their Lord, if the Christians are not willing to take a stand for what they believe, then it's easy for the, the watching world to conclude 
uh, your God doesn't seem very relevant to you. He doesn't seem very important to you. Okay, so what do you think about that? Four reasons people don't want to be around Christians. You judge me. You don't care about me. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You act like God doesn't matter. Now, that means we have an image problem, right? It means that we have a reputation problem. We have a credibility problem. But this is not just an issue of marketing. Like, oh, we've got to do better marketing and improve our image. You know what this is? I think there's one common issue behind all these perceptions of Christians. And that common issue, what do you think it is? I think it's this. I think behind all these accusations or perceptions of Christians, there's one common issue, and that issue is we, those of us who are Christians, who name the name of Jesus, who have signed up to follow Christ, we are too little transformed. We're just not being changed and transformed enough into the image and likeness of Jesus. You know? And so I think that's what, what's happening. It's like we know that we've got religion. We know we've got church. We even know that we've got Jesus. The question is, does Jesus have us? Or does he have enough of us where he's really gotten a hold of us so that our lives are changed and transformed by our relationship with him and by being in his presence? I think the common issue behind all these accusations is that we're too little transformed. And I actually think there is one solution. This isn't going to solve everything. But I think there's one thing if we could experience and grow in that would really pretty much uh, remove all these objections people have. You know, you're too judgmental and you're hypocritical and you don't care about me and your, fit, your God seems irrelevant to your life. I think there's one thing that if we can really experience and practice, it's going to take most of that, that away. You know what it is? If we could just love as Jesus loves. You think about it, right? And they say you're too judgmental, you're uncaring, you're hypocritical, your God doesn't seem relevant to your life. If we could just learn to love as Jesus loves, that would, it's not a marketing issue, it, it's a credibility issue. We would, we would regain uh, the attention and the respect of a watching world. The issue is we're too little transformed. We can, we can act Christian, especially on Sundays. Everyone knows it's pretty easy to act Christian on Sundays when you're at church. But if it's not a deep-rooted transformation in your life, then, you know, the other stuff is going to leak out, eke out, express itself, and uh, people are going to see us as too little change. So I want, you to, uh, I want you to wrestle with this question. Here's the question. How would your life be different if you experienced more of Jesus' love for you? How would your life be different if you experienced more of Jesus' love for you? And I don't mean just knowledge in your head. If you experience profoundly and deeply the love of Jesus in your life, how might your life be different? Okay, I want you to think about that. And I want you, okay, I want to stretch you a little bit here. I want you to talk with someone about that, just for about a minute or so, okay? Just one or two people near you. Don't get in a group of ten people, you know. Uh, one or two people. And you may know them or you may not. If you don't know them, just introduce yourself. One or two people, and, and just talk about that. How might your life be different if you experience the love of Jesus more deeply, more profoundly, more undeniably? Okay, how might your life be different? Okay, just talk about that. I'm going to give you a little 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds to talk about that.
Okay, maybe 30 more seconds, so if, if the other person hasn't talked or the other people haven't talked, let them talk. Uh, but just share what you think about that question. How might your life be different if you profoundly, deeply experience more of the love of Jesus? Okay, now I really want to challenge you to stretch yourself a little bit. I, w I want to hear some of your answers. And it may be your answer or maybe the, you know, someone else that you were talking with. Don't say, you know, like, oh, well, David said this, you know. Uh, just, to, just say, we said this. One thing we said was this, okay? So let me hear some of your answers. Uh, how, how might your life be different if you deeply, profoundly experience the love of Jesus? Okay, I would anticipate more of what God's doing in my life. Great, thanks. Yeah. I would take care of what's more important rather than just the urgent. Okay, relationships would take a priority. Great, thanks. How about some others? I'm sorry, I missed the last part. Okay, if I experience more of God's love, I would better exemplify that in my own life. We become more loving, right? Yeah, because there's a source of love that's coming not just from my own efforts. How about someone else? Oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> All right, we'd be less stressed out. Amen to that, thanks. What else? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Did you hear what she said? We would live without fear. You know, there's so many things we worry about, money and children, and, you know, the world is full of things to worry about. And she says, you know, if I really experienced more of the love of Jesus, I, I would live with a lot less fear, right? That's great. Someone else? Okay, that's really true. I'd be less concerned about what people think of me if, if I really felt assured of how God sees me. These are great answers. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay. I think he said uh, more accepting of, of people's faults and d disappointments and, and being more encouraging to other people. Yeah, that's great. And hopefully for ourselves, you know, treat ourselves better, but also other people. That's cool. Other, other thoughts? Did I see some? Yeah. Okay, uh, great. Uh, take more risks and do what God has called me to do. 
Anybody else? Yeah. Feel more secure. Yeah, feel more secure, less afraid, and yeah, it's just... So, so we know the answers to this, right? Did anybody else want to say something? I mean, we get this, you know, like I said, we have this uh, kind of this bad image, you know, you're, you guys are judgmental and you're hypocritical and God seems irrelevant in your life and you don't seem to care about other people. And, and I said, I think there's one fundamental issue behind all of that, and that's that we are too little transformed. You know, we're supposed to be changed into the image of Jesus more and more, you know, so that there's greater and greater clarity of the image of God that's shining through our lives. And we are the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. But if we're not transformed, then we have religion, right? And we have religious practices, and we have cultural Christianity, and sometimes we have consumer Christianity where, where we, we say we love Jesus, but really it's all about us and what can he do for me. So we're too little transformed. I want you to look with me at a passage in the Bible. Uh, this, incidentally, so we're starting and we're embarking on this journey together. Uh, for 12 weeks, we're going to be focusing on loving as Jesus loves. And I think that's the real issue. If we can experience more of his love and love as Jesus loves, then we will experience the kind of transformation that God wants for us. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said it's about love, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus is asking, well, what's really on God's heart? Uh, what would it be like to be transformed to be a really godly person? It, it really focuses here on love, right? Loving God and loving others. And so we want to uh, do this. The next 12 Sundays, we're going to talk about uh, loving as Jesus loves, especially in three different areas. The first one, the first five weeks, we're going to talk about um, how Jesus loves us, how Jesus loves us and how, you know, how that changes us and transforms us. And then we'll spend about five Sundays on loving one another because if God's love has really penetrated our hearts, changed our hearts, and filled our hearts, it's going to affect the way we, we love each other, right? And Jesus said, the world's going to know if you're my disciples by the way you love one another. So we'll spend some weeks on that. And then toward the end of the series, we're going to talk about God's love for the world and how do we love the world. So it's, you know, how, do we, how does Jesus love us and we love him? How do we love one another? And then how do we love the world that God loves and that Jesus came to die for? So that's kind of where we're going the next 12 weeks. I hope you'll be with us. And today I want to launch this series with a message called Love Changes Everything. Love Changes Everything. Jesus told this great story. Well, uh, the Bible tells this great story. And within it, Jesus tells a little story, what's called a parable. Here's the passage for this morning. It's Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Okay, before I tell you the rest of the story, a couple things. One is that we know that Jesus was often accused of fellowshipping, dining with tax collectors and sinners. And to the religious people and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, uh, that was just a major faux pas, that if you're a righteous person, one of the ways that you express your righteousness is by staying away from unrighteous people by separating from anybody that's not, un, that's not holy. And so Jesus would hang out with tax collectors and sinners like Levi the tax collector and uh, women who you know, were prostitutes, and, and he got you know, condemned by, for that. What I want you to see here in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, is Jesus also hung around with Pharisees. When they invite him, he would go. Here's what happens. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Uh, 
Here, here's how they ate back then. If it was a formal dinner or a banquet or something, uh, there'd be a table. It may, it may be rectangular or square or round, but there'd be a table, and the guests, uh, the table was low, so you're not sitting in chairs. What you're doing basically is you're lying on your side as you're eating. Uh, typically, uh, a person would lie on their side, and, and, and often these, these kind of dinners were only men. And you would lie on your left side typically so that you can eat your food with your right hand. So you're kind of like leaning on your left elbow and you're, you're you know, eating with your right hand. So that means the upper part of your body is near the table. Obviously, that's where the food is, right? And then your legs are extended out from the table. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, the, you know, like the spokes of a wheel. Everybody's legs are extended out. I'll tell you, it'll become evident why that's important. So Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. He's reclining at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping. So you've got to think about the table, right? Everybody's leaning on their side and their feet are extended away from the table. So really, if she wants to approach Jesus, all she has access to are his feet, his legs, right? A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet. That's all she can reach, right? At, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and per poured perfume on them. This is extravagant love. This is a, a costly kind of a, a expression of love. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now he's not speaking audibly, he's thinking this. He said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. See, Jesus, if he's a prophet, if he's a rabbi, if he's a religious person, he would never let that woman touch him because she's a sinner, right? She, she could have been likely a prostitute or sexually immoral person. Uh, she was apparently a well-known sinner. Everybody knew she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, uh, there's a kind of an idiom here in the original language. And when Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. It's kind of like, you know, like, like when a wife says to her husband, we have to talk, you know? It's like, uh-oh, something unpleasant is probably going to be said next. Well, that's the way that Jesus speaks now to Simon the Pharisee. I've got something to tell you. It's like, I, you know, I need to tell you something. And, and Simon says, well, tell me, teacher. And then Jesus launches into a parable. Right in the middle of this story, there's a little parable from verses 41 to 43. Here's how the parable goes. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. How much is that? A denarii was equivalent to about one day's wage for a, a, a laborer. So I want you to think about this. If, let's say they made $15 an hour because we're trying to you know, raise the minimum wage or whatever. If the minimum wage were $15 an hour and you worked eight hours uh, and, and you worked... Uh, 500 days, 500 denarii, right? 500 days wages. That would be about $60,000, okay? So one man owes him, let's say, about $60,000. The other man owes the same moneylender about $6,000, about two months' wages, right? One owes about a year and a half wages, 500 denarii. One owes about two months' wages, 50 denarii, okay? Now, here's the problem. Neither of them, this is verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back. That means in their culture, they're in dire straits. If you owe money and you can't pay it back, you know, it's like you're up a creek without a paddle, to use a, 
American idiom, right? <laughs> it, it, it's saying you're in dire straits. In fact, if you owed money and you couldn't pay it back, uh, the person you owed money to can get you thrown in prison. And you have to stay in prison until you can pay the money back. And I'm thinking, that's dire straits because how are you going to make money in prison unless you have some illegal contraband business or something? That for most people, it's like, if I owe money and I can't pay it back and then you throw me in prison, there's no way I'm going to pay it back, right? So I just want you to see two men here are in dire straits. They both owe money they can't pay back. One owes a whole lot, a year and a half wages. One owes uh, uh, still a lot, two months wages. But neither of them can pay them back. Now, here's how the, the, the story turns. Verse 42. So he forgave the debts of both. That is an incredible, surprising act of mercy. And then Jesus says, now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Right? And then Jesus says, you have judged correctly. So a little story. Uh, we kind of know something about what's going on here. Jesus is saying, if you, if you owe a huge debt and you get forgiven, hopefully you're going to be really grateful, really thankful you're going to love that person that, that had mercy on you. If you have a small debt, you'll be grateful, hopefully. But, you know, you, you don't have as much love. So then Jesus says this. He turned toward the woman, verse 44, and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, everybody in the room saw that woman. I mean, you know, she kind of created a scene probably. I mean, not every day. A woman comes in and she's, you know, her tears are washing Jesus' feet and then she lets down her hair to wipe his feet. That would have been a scandalous thing in their culture for a woman to let her hair down and expose her hair in public. Uh, but she does it. And then uh, she's kissing his feet. And, uh, and then she's pouring perfume on his feet. So everybody probably saw this. But you know how you can see somebody but not really see them? Not really pay attention? This is what Jesus says. He turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, Simon. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, tears and wiped them with her hair. And you did not give me a kiss. You know, the Middle Eastern kiss of greeting on the cheek and all that. You did not give me a kiss, kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head. That would be typical, you know, olive oil and just to anoint your guests. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? I mean, they knew that only, that's only God's prerogative, right? To say, now, if you hurt me, I could say I forgive you, right? But I cannot say, and God forgives all your sins. That's, that's a divine prerogative. So when Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, people are kind of upset. They say, you know, that's kind of like something only God can do, and uh, you shouldn't be saying that. And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, so, so here's the story. I, I want you to think about this story a little bit. Why does the Pharisee invite Jesus to his house? Is he a fan? Does he love Jesus? Probably not. In fact... Uh, what I learned about the culture at the time is actually this host is very insulting to Jesus because he doesn't give him water to wash. He doesn't give him, you know, he doesn't greet him with a kiss. And it'd be like, if you came to my house, if I, let's say I'd say, hey, come on over, come on over tomorrow. And you show up at my door 
and uh, you knock on the door or you ring the doorbell, and then uh, I open the door and you're standing there, and we're just standing at each other. At, you know, how long will we stand there if I don't say, come in? Sort of awkward, isn't it? Well, let's say the door is open and you're standing there, and I just uh, go and sit down. So you don't know what to do, but since I invited you, you, you just come in, right? And I'm watching TV, so I just keep watching TV, and I'm sitting down, and you're standing there, sort of, sort of awkward, isn't it? In fact, sort of rude. It'd be insulting. Like, why, why in the heck did you invite me over, right? Because you didn't greet me. You didn't say, hey, nice to see you. Glad you're here. You didn't invite me to come in. Uh, you didn't offer me a seat. You didn't offer me a drink. And I'm here, and you just keep watching the TV. In other words, it'd be rude and insulting to my guest, right? In Jesus' culture, that's exactly what the Pharisee is doing. You, you notice what, what, Je- what Jesus says to Simon? He says, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't put oil on my head. That would be like minimum expectations that a host would extend this courtesy to the guest. So you know what's going on? This Pharisee has invited Jesus to his house, but he is deliberately publicly humiliating him. He is insulting him. It'd be like, you know, if you came over and I didn't tell you to sit down and I didn't offer you a drink and I just kept watching TV while you're there, you just feel insulted, right? You feel like, man, what am I, chopped liver? Why am I here, right? And Jesus could have got upset and he could have left, but he didn't. Now, this woman, she comes in and she sees what's happening. Uh, she apparently had already, you know, heard Jesus. She something knew of something of how he was forgiving sinners and how he said, you know, I have not come to save the righteous, but the, uh, you know, I, I've come for the unrighteous. I, I've, I'm not, I, I'm a do- like a doctor. I'm like a physician. I haven't come for those who are well. I've come for those who are sick. And it was, he has come for people who are lost and broken and sinful and hurting and dysfunctional and lonely and irreligious and uh, people of ill repute. And, and he says, you know, I love those people. I've come for them. And that woman has heard something of that. She's seen something of that. Jesus going to eat at the home of Levi, the, the hated tax collector. She's heard some of, of his, his grace and mercy for people who are sinners. And she's moved. She's profoundly moved. And she comes. And Jesus is going to say, you know, this woman, she's like the person who, who owed a huge debt she couldn't pay. And she received forgiveness. The debt was canceled. And she's profoundly grateful, right? Uh, she's not worried about what people are thinking of her. She comes, she comes grateful. She comes humble. She comes brave. Some of you said, you know, if I really knew God loved me and I experienced his love, man, I, I would be bold for him. I would take risks for him. And think about the risks that this woman is taking, you know, condemnation and ridicule and, and all of that. And, and she's just out there. So Jesus is saying, this woman has been profoundly touched by love. And she's been changed by love. And love changes everything. Now you think about the Pharisee. Why does the Pharisee have Jesus there? To insult him? To humiliate him? Uh, He's he's skeptical, right? He says, if this man is really a prophet, he wouldn't let that woman touch him. He would know that's a sinful woman. His his attitude toward Jesus is, I'm going to criticize him. I'm going to evaluate him. I'm going to assess him. I'm going to insult him. I'm going to ignore all the common courtesies that are expected in their Middle Eastern culture. And so I want you to think about this. Sometimes there's two people in church and they're both Christians and they both know Jesus but one person is like the Pharisee where where they're just sort of staying distant. Maybe they're just taking a a judgmental attitude. And and the other person 
is a person who's profoundly touched and transformed by the love of Jesus, right? So the Pharisee, he's in the same room, right? They're both in proximity to Jesus. One person is getting profoundly changed. She, she's now grateful and humbled, and, and she's pouring out lavish expressions of love on Jesus. She would do anything for him. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She's taking risks, right? She's been transformed by love. Love changes everything. Uh, the Pharisee, he's in the same room. He invited Jesus over, but he's not being impacted by the life or the love of Jesus. Now, I think this is why people sometimes don't want to be around Christians because we're too little changed. We've got religion. We've got church. We've got Jesus, but we're not being transformed by him, by close, intimate relationship with him. We're not opening wide our hearts to his love. I think that's the issue. That's the problem. You think about this woman. She, before she lived in guilt in shame and rejection. She's a social outcast. Maybe she had a poor self-image. Maybe she was always afraid of being seen among polite society because of fear that she'd be ridiculed. But now she, she knows that Jesus loves her and accepts her and forgives her. And what happens? She's totally transformed, right? No longer worried about her image or what other people are thinking. Uh, now she's freed. She's been transformed by love. And as a result, she's grateful, she's humble, she's bold. And Jesus, this is what he's doing. He's launching this love revolution. And he wants to start with you and me, his people, people that would say, I know Jesus. I've given my life to him. I've asked him into my heart. I want to follow him. And he wants to launch that love revolution in our lives. And you know where it starts? It starts right where you are. Pharisees in the room, the woman's in the room. One person has changed, one person isn't. You ever thought about this? Why isn't that Pharisee changed? I mean, doesn't Jesus love him too? Isn't the Pharisee the guy in the, in the parable that only owes 50 denarii instead of a 500? And in the parable, the guy gets forgiven of the 50, right? I think this is what happens. Jesus is very willing to forgive that Pharisee, but the Pharisee is keeping a distance, right? The Pharisee does not have faith in Jesus. The Pharisee is too proud, too stubborn. The Pharisee is into pride and prejudice. He wants to evaluate that woman and judge her separate himself, right? She's so different. I got nothing to do with her. I'm not like her at all. He wants to stand in critical judgment and assessment of Jesus. You know, if this man were really a prophet, he wouldn't let all this stuff happen. And so the Pharisee, I think it's his pride, his prejudice that is keeping him from receiving grace. It's not that Jesus doesn't love him. It's not that Jesus isn't willing to forgive him. It's that he himself, his pride and prejudice is keeping him away. So we, we get to decide kind of like where we're going to be, where we're going to stand. You know, uh, one thing we've seen uh, lately is that um, these people come by and they want to buy our house. Real estate agents want to list our house. Uh, people write us letters and say, oh, I really want to live in this area. If you'd like to sell your house, let me know. And, and, and every once in a while, they use this, these two words that are like magic words. They say, I, I want to live in this area and I want your house and I will buy it as is. And I think, ooh, that's kind of cool, you know. I mean, and basically, they're saying, I, I would like to buy your house, and, and you don't have to fix those cracks in the driveway, and you don't have to repaint the walls, and, and don't worry about trying to get new carpet or remodeling the kitchen or, you know, putting in a new roof on the house before you put it on the market. I will take it as is. In other words, I value this house. I want it so much that I will take it just the way it is. And that'd be pretty cool. I would probably take them up on it if I had somewhere else to live, but I don't. <laughs> But I believe this is what Jesus 
is saying to that woman. It's like, okay, whatever your sinful past is, I'm not going to tell you, get your act together. You know, you know, the Pharisees, this is what they believed. They believed you could be forgiven if you verbally repented, and then if you made reparations and paid off all your debt, all your sin, and then if you obeyed the law and tried to obey the law for a long time and you did well at it, then maybe you could be forgiven. You know, forgiveness is something earned and merited. Now, in the parable Jesus tells, he says there's two men who owed money and neither of them could pay. And that's the situation, actually, the Pharisee's in, although he doesn't realize it. That's the situation the woman is in, and she does realize it. That's the situation you and I are in. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. We cannot work off our sins. We can't make enough restitution so that we deserve forgiveness. You know what had to happen? Jesus had to die on the cross in order to pay the debt that he didn't owe, but to pay the debt that we owed that we couldn't pay. And he did it willingly, and he did it gladly, and he did it for us. And so it's like Jesus is looking at you, and he's looking at me, and he's saying, you know what, I want you as is. Don't, you don't have to remodel yourself. You don't have to fix yourself up. You don't have to make yourself deserving. You never could anyway. I value you. I want you as is. You come to me. You come to me. Now, if somebody bought your house as is, uh, I don't know about you, but... If they bought my house, they'd want to fix up some stuff. They would want to do some remodeling and some repainting and all that. But that's after they get it as is. So when Jesus says, I want you to come to me. If you're weary, heavy laden, burdened, you come to me. I'll take you as is. I want you as is. And you come to him and you give yourself to him. Then he can, you know, start remodeling if he wants. You know, he says, you know, you've got an anger issue here or you know, you've got to get control of your drinking, you know. And, I mean, he can help us. He can transform us. It's the love of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God that changes and transforms us. But if that doesn't happen, we've just got self-effort and religion. And we're going to be those people that are too little changed. Okay. Come as you are. You know, and that's really exemplified to me in the communion. Because uh, when we come to the communion table, it's like Jesus, he says, you know, this is my body given for you. You didn't earn it. I'm going to give it. I'm going to die on the cross for you because that's how much I value you. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to fix yourself up. You just come as is. My body, broken, given for you, for you. You take it. And then, uh, then he takes the, the cup and says, um, this is my blood, but I'm going to pour it out. It's going to be shed on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, and what, you know what that is? It's just like in the parable, the, the, the money lender who forgives the debt. It's a surprising, undeserved, unqualified act of mercy. And that's Jesus. I'm giving myself to you. I want you to come to me as is. You know, and then some of you, you may not be Christians. Or maybe people think you're a Christian, but in your heart you don't, you don't really know if you are. Uh, you don't know if you've really given your life to Jesus. And I want to encourage you, and I want to invite you today. Do that today. Take care of that today. Uh, you, you've had religion. Maybe you've had church. But have you really had Jesus? And maybe the even more important question, has Jesus really had you? Does he have you now? And if he doesn't, 
and you want to just give yourself to him today, you will experience his love in a transforming way. So make that decision today. If you make that decision, you want to, you want to step over the line here and, and come to Jesus today, uh, fill out that connect with us card and check that box. There's a box there that says, I, I, I'm coming to Jesus today. And check that box and turn it in and we'll, we want to help you grow. Uh, and, and you know what? Maybe you've never taken communion or maybe you did it and you knew it wasn't sincere. But if you want to give your life to Jesus today, you come and take communion along with the other followers of Jesus today. Uh, you don't have to you know, earn something first or give something first. You just come because Jesus says, I want you as is. Come to me. If you're weary, heavy laden, burdened, dysfunctional, broken, you come because I want you as is. Take a piece of the bread and a cracker, uh, dip it in the juice, and then partake uh, with gladness in your hearts. I think if we really believe God loves us and really open our hearts wide to the love of Jesus, we would be so much more content. We would be so much more secure. We would be so much more joyful. We would be so much more generous. We'd be so much more at peace. The last thing Jesus said to that woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And may this be a day of peace for each of you. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, then we're going to invite you to come up. When you come up, you can come up either of these two inner aisles, the side aisles on the inside. And uh, when you come in, and we'll have ushers up here that can help direct you when there's an open space for you. And uh, after you partake, then you can return to your seat down the center aisle or the, or the outside aisles. And we're also going to have a few people uh, on the sides. If, if you'd like to just have someone pray for you, just stop by there. Somebody will pray for you. That'd be cool, too. Okay, let's prepare our hearts in prayer. Lord, we look to you now. I guess today we sort of get to decide if we identify with the Simon the Pharisee, with the critical spirit standing in judgment, aloof and separate, or if we want to identify with that woman who, without pride, would just say, I owe a debt I can't pay. And I need mercy. And thank you, Jesus, that you love me, you accept me, and you forgive me. And I'm coming to you just as I am. Lord, thank you that here at this table is forgiveness and acceptance. And may we have a sweet time of communion with you as we receive anew and afresh the expression of your body given for us, your blood shed for us. And Lord, make us new. May we experience genuine transformation that comes from a living encounter with you. In Jesus' name we pray.